We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Technology is present in nearly every aspect of architectural practice, whether it be digital sketches, building information modelling, or even simply keeping timesheets. Along with the technology in architecture studios, the tools that builders and fabricators use are getting more advanced. Architects have to find the balance between what they can design and what is physically possible to make. It's no good if a client asks you to design a house for them and it looks absolutely fantastic, but the building can't even be built in the real world. This has led some architects to seek out the latest technology available so they can test what's possible, and the work that they're producing is unlike anything we've seen before. As the tools fabricators and manufacturers use continue to evolve, the architecture profession will continue to evolve with it. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Glenda Caldwell, Roland Snooks, and Todd Hislop about the technology pushing new methods of fabrication, design, and creative practice as a whole. Our first guest today is Glenda Caldwell, and her background is in architecture, and she was always amazed and perplexed by technology and how it's used in the construction and manufacturing industry. Glenda has always been fascinated by the way in which digital sketch or drawing can be interpreted and converted into a physical object. Her current area of research is design robotics, where she is exploring manufacturing technologies with a specific focus on the role of robotic manufacturing. All right. Well, Glenda, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really lovely to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me today. So the name of what you're working on is called Design Robotics. Did you want to tell us a little bit more about Design Robotics and and what that entails? Yes, absolutely. So in 2016, my colleague and I, Jared Donovan, who's an interaction design practitioner and academic and expert, we had been collaborating on other projects in the past and QUT had been approached by this wonderful company called UAP. And UAP stands for Urban Art Projects. And they're a global manufacturing company that is headquartered in Brisbane. And they work with the world's leading artists, designers, and architects. And their job is to realize the artistic and design intentions of their clients. And they have a design department, but they are the manufacturers. And they had done a project with Gary Partners. It was the staircase of the UTS building. Uh, right. So this is Frank Gary's architecture firm over in the States? Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that project, which Gary Partners is, is renowned for their use of very sophisticated software to visualize the complex forms that they generate and when UAP was working on this staircase, they ended up using a 100-year-old process of panel beating. So the staircase looks like a crumpled metal mirror, which is you know <laughs> typical of the Gary design. But you know they, they realized that there was a disconnect between the sophistication that the software can generate and then the actual manufacturing process. So it was sort of at that point that they became really interested in how they could start to incorporate some advanced manufacturing technologies into their process. Right. So does that mean that Design Robotics then comes in and tries to break down the the barriers between the amazing visualizations and then the actual manufacturing? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, So we're really lucky at QUT where we have an amazing engineering faculty and we have some of the most renowned academics and roboticists with a particular expertise in robotic vision. So we partnered with Jonathan Roberts, who's a professor of robotic vision, and Peter Cork, who's also a a professor of robotic vision. And we put together a project for UAP 
where we were able to secure some funding through the Innovative Manufacturing Cooperative Research Center. So that's also known as the IMCRC. And we proposed a project and were successful in getting funding for a five-year project. And it's also in partnership with RMIT. And the title of that project is Design Robotics for Mass Customization Manufacturing. So UAP, because of the nature of the creative clients that they work with, the type of manufacturing that they do is bespoke and it's high value. So that means that every single thing that they make is a one one of one. Yes, exactly. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, and it sounds like you know, you're working with so many different faculties and so many different disciplines. What's been really exciting for everyone to work on in that area in terms of crafting of things? What's been the most exciting thing for everyone to come together and roll out? Oh, I mean, there are so many exciting things that have come out of this research and a lot of things that we didn't expect and a lot of things that maybe seemed kind of easy at first, but actually were much harder <laughs> to accomplish <laughs> and vice versa. You, yeah. So some of the things that looked really hard were actually not too, too hard, but yeah, it's been an incredible collaboration. I can imagine it's like when uh, you see the there are some amazing videos on YouTube of automated machines fabricating things and some things that some people might think are really simple like folding metal or like you say the old panel beating when you actually see a machine doing it it's doing some very very complex things is that right Yes absolutely absolutely so the the one of the key tasks of our project is to create a robotic vision capability for an industrial robot so that it can polish unique forms. Okay. So what? why is that one particular goal such a huge thing? Well, we spent quite a lot of time working with UAP to uncover one of the tasks that would be really useful to their workforce. So polishing metal can actually be quite physically strenuous for a human. And it requires physical strength, but also the actual debris that's caused from the polishing process can cause rash. And it's just one of those jobs that people don't really like to do. So that's what we wanted to work on and try to increase, I guess, by attempting to alleviate one of these dirty jobs or one of these jobs that people don't want to do. Then the whole point is to allow some of these workers some freedom so that they could go and do some of the jobs that they actually like doing because their workforce are actually very, very skilled craftspeople. So by freeing up some of their time and their, in some ways it's, it's an attempt to save their physical body, you know, to save them, but also give them an opportunity to do more of the creative and high rewarding jobs that they enjoy. Yeah, I guess that's that sounds like a really nice part of design robotics where you're not just coming in and saying, oh, you do this thing, but we want to replace it with a robot for you. You've actually spoken to them and they've said, yeah, we'd, we'd rather not do this job. Can you can you give us a tool or a robot that can that can take care of it for us that also allows them to not fatigue earlier so they can actually spend longer doing the thing that they love because they're not wearing and tearing their body? Yes, yes, but it's actually... It is a hard task to to get a robot to see complicated form and um, polish it. Yeah, so it it has required a lot of expertise in terms of developing specific software and you know developing the robotic vision capability and the tools. So it is it is a very hard task, and that's why one of the reasons why you know we need five years to to address this issue. But it's also the project has also shown us that. It's actually a combination of technologies and human skill and knowledge that can start to address these complex problems. So it's not about automating the process. It's about which tool is best for the job and and each job is different. So that combination of technology and human comes together at different points. And it has also led us to really appreciate that it's actually humans and robots working together. So it's more of a collaborative sort of robotic approach where we think 
can really maximize the manufacturing industry. Absolutely. Well, it's, it just sounds interesting where um, if it started with a Frank Gehry designed very, very complex shape and you're able to get the robot to do this one of one almost organic shape, what does that mean for a lot more standard, more simple shapes later on? Does that mean that this could be a tool that can be then sized down that every builder can have in their in their workshop? Possibly, possibly. I mean, um, if you think of 3D printing technology, you know, that's a good example of something that was a very expensive machine, which is now something that a lot of people can buy. The cost of the technology has come down and has become quite accessible. So as these robotic and other advanced technologies become more mainstream, then yes, they could definitely be more part of the everyday construction process. And it is starting to happen in areas such as prefabricated buildings or modular buildings. So yeah, it's it's becoming more accessible. Mm, and more practical, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And that's one of the things that I'm starting to understand as a result of this project is that for me, the manufacturing industry is new to me because I come from an architecture background, so I'm more familiar with sort of the construction industry. But this has been an incredible insight into manufacturing. And I am really starting to see that the future, or, or I guess one of my interests is to continue to explore how we can bridge that gap between the manufacturing industry and the construction industry, and what is the role of architects in looking to these two different sectors and how we can bridge that gap, especially with these technologies. Now that you've started to dive into that world, mm. do you find that the sort of feedback loop with how fast the visualization programs are moving is not keeping up with the manufacturing technology or do you think it's actually the other way around? Yeah, I think the, the software creates very complex forms and things like virtual reality and augmented reality play a part in visualizing and understanding those forms. But there's also big opportunities for how, especially I think augmented reality and mixed reality, they are also starting to play a bigger part in how these forms are translated onto a site or, and how these buildings could be assembled. So there's so many challenges with these complex forms because the level of documentation that's needed to understand them and to communicate them in a way where they can be manufactured or they can be constructed is just incredibly complex. So that's where I think augmented reality can play a big part in helping to streamline from a 3D render in a computer to the actual site and how things come together on site. Right. I guess that's something that we're dealing with now with virtual reality being used to show clients or show investors maybe what it might look like at the end. How do you think AR will bridge that gap and how do you think AR is going to help get through those sorts of problems? Well, there's different ways. So one is in using AR to see where because you can overlay the digital model with the physical model oh okay so you can when you say the physical model do you mean the, the thing actually being built yes the thing actually being built so when you can compare the virtual model with the physical model you can start to see where there's discrepancies so it can be used as a form of validating as much as it can be used as a way to help the actual assembly like where do screws need to be placed or where does rebar have to be laid? You know, where do electrical cables have to be placed? So you can start to see that in the physical at the same time that you're seeing the virtual because of AR. Wow. That's really advanced. So that could also be a good way to, to detect when things might be just out of place and they might not even be visible if we were looking at them with our naked eye. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I guess yeah, part of that is sort of making this technology to, to be able to do it. I mean, 
do you actually get in there and get your hands dirty and make these robots or are you <laughs> collaborating with uh, with engineers to uh, to make these things happen? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I have, I work with some incredibly talented engineers. So the engineers that we work with are electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, computer scientists, software engineers. So I don't need to get into the programming side of things. <laughs> Fortunately, that's not that's not my strength. But I, I, I have a lot of respect for the people that can make that magic happen. Yeah, it must be a really great team to work with. And and was has there been a moment where someone came to you where they said, "Oh, look, we've been we wanted to make this on site, and we just there's no other way that we can make it." But we've told you guys have a machine that can help us do it. Has there been a uh, a moment like that with this uh, with this technology? Yeah, there have. There's one project in particular that stands out to me. So they, it was a, it's a balustrade for a building in Melbourne, and it's a curved balustrade, but it's also interwoven. So it's a, you know, it looks like part what of... What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it looks like a bird nest. Oh, wow. That was the initial concept. And then in order to explore the design further, they took it into virtual reality where they could work immersed in a virtual sort of environment to, to really come to terms with the scale of it and let's say the thickness of the different elements and the amount of curvature that was required and so once they generated that 3D model of this sort of woven balustrade, they were able to send that 3D model to the robot, which then milled the pattern at a polystyrene. So if a human would have tried to create that pattern, it would have been nearly impossible or it would have taken them so much time because it was a very complicated pattern and the robot was able to do it very precisely. And then they were able to cast that and they did a lost foam casting process so that the foam pattern stayed within the formwork and then they poured the hot aluminium into it and it burnt out the polystyrene pattern. So they were left with this very precise, beautiful woven balustrade. And the biggest, I think it was close to two, two meters long um, and about 1.5 meters, you know, that was about the the size of it. And they ended up having multiple different pieces and each piece had a different pattern. So it was very complicated. Oh my gosh. It just sounds like so many different elements all having to come together to make this very complex three-dimensional thing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and I should probably should have asked this at the very beginning. Um we keep saying the robot or the machine. How big is this thing? I mean, if you <laughs> make a you know, multi-level staircase, because yeah. I have seen some robots you know, with, with arms yeah. that, uh, that move around, yeah. but you were then talking about hot aluminium being poured by the robot and things. So what, what does it look like? Can you describe it to us? Yeah, so actually it's an industrial robot that they have. It's called a, it's a KUKA K or 90. <laughs> and the 90 just means how much weight the robot can hold. So if you think about an automobile's assembly line, you often see images of these robotic arms. So it's one of those. And this robotic arm can hold 90 kilograms of, of weight. And they have different tools that they can attach to the robot arm. And it has six degrees of movement. So that means that it's not constrained by a 2D plane. So it can move in, in three dimensions. So they use that robot to do different things. So they use it for robotic milling. So like a CNC machine, but just at a much larger scale. And they can mill different materials like polystyrene, wood. They can mill into sand because they make these sand molds for the aluminium that they cast. But they also have a second robot that does large scale 3D printing. So it's a similar industrial robot, but it has a printing head and a, print, and a hotbed, and they can print different types of plastics from that. So when, when it goes to the casting, that's still humans that are pouring the hot aluminium. So there's different parts of the process that the robot actually works on. And with their work in particular, it's more either subtractive, which is the milling sort of work, where they take away the material to create a form or additive, which is the 3D printing, where they build up the layers to make a complex form. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. It sounds very exciting. It must be amazing to watch hitting the play button and watching it do its thing. It must be, <laughs> must be incredible to see. Yes. And then the other, um, the other robots that we have at QUT as part of our uh, research lab or our research team, we have some smaller UR10s, which are collaborative robots. And the difference with these is that they are also robot arms. They're smaller. They're not as strong, so they can't hold as much weight. But they have sensors that are built into them. So if, let's say, I was working next to you know, one of these smaller robotic arms, if it were to bump into me, it would stop. So it has some inbuilt sort of sensors and safety mechanisms. So that, that's why they're called collaborative. So people can work with them and next to them. Whereas the industrial robots are in a cell. So they're blocked off with barriers so that people can't be close to them when they're doing their jobs. Because Right. So they don't care about human life. They'll, no. they'll just completely wipe you out. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll stay yes. away from them. Yes. Um, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful hearing about all of the work that you're doing, Glenda. Just to me, it sounds a bit like a Rube Goldberg machine, but it sounds like um, it can do some amazing stuff. So, yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast and we can't wait to see some of the projects that you're involved with in the future. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate being a part of the show. As emerging technologies are developed by researchers like Glenda, it takes dedicated practitioners to experiment with them in practice. One such practitioner in Melbourne is our next guest, who runs a research lab at RMIT, as well as the architecture practice studio Roland Snooks. Roland is at the forefront of computational design, where he explores the ways architecture can be designed, built, and how new technology will affect the forms that can be made. We talk about some of his projects and the direction future architecture could go when we're not trying to make new technology build using old methods. All right, Roland, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Daniel, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very well. Fantastic. So for people who might not know your work, do you mainly use your technological understanding to design standard houses or standard buildings that are square, or do you use the technology to sort of really break those boundaries? Yeah, certainly not using technology to try and replace what we currently do. It's trying to imagine how architecture might be radically different due to technological innovation. So I guess the work that we're doing comes from actually a, a practice before either the lab or the or studio Roland Snooks. And it was a research practice called Kukuja. And this was a collaboration between Rob Stewart Smith, Jonathan Poblosek and myself. And we started this practice only a few years after we graduated and the intention of the practice was never to build anything. It was really to try and look at what we saw as a, as a convergence between a philosophical approach, sort of a, an interest in a processual understanding of the world. So the idea of understanding the world through process rather than through object or phenomena and how that related to a series of new design technologies. In particular, we were interested in computation and, and algorithmic work. And so we were looking at how these things came together and what type of implications it might have for architecture, so what type of um, design processes we would develop, what types of forms that would lead to. And then I guess this generated a whole series of, of highly unconventional forms and geometries. And then the more recent practices, Studio Roland Snooks and the lab, these have been very much about trying to then work out how these come into reality, like how um, a lot of the more whimsical work work we were doing with Kukuja then begins to be built and how that becomes relevant to um, to architecture and to building. Right. Okay. So when you get to push the boundaries of these projects that wouldn't be built, what were the benefits to architecture that you were discovering through this work? So that work was never really about addressing a particular problem or trying to solve a, solve a problem. It was much more of an experimental approach. So it was having a hypothesis and saying, okay, if we change the way we design something, how is that going to change the types of things that we design? How is it going to change the, the potential forms and structures? And so it wasn't, it was never, it was speculative. Speculative and experimental never addressing a particular problem or concern. Okay. So I guess if that was the result, then where did that, or how did that lead you into wanting to make real projects? Kikuja ran for almost a decade. And I guess towards the end of that 10 years of, 
of work. It became a, an obsession doing this this work. But at a certain point, it was less and less fulfilling when we couldn't build the work. And so I guess we realized to be able to take this work forward, it was no longer satisfying just to render these projects and to create models and digital images of them. But we wanted those things to escape the computer and become real. And I guess that happened around 2012, 2013, when I moved back from the US and came back to Melbourne and, and started working at RMIT and started developing this architectural robotics lab. So tell us a little bit about the robotics lab. What does that entail and what does that allow you to do that most people aren't able to do out in practice? So the robotics lab is really exploring how we can use industrial robots to build parts of buildings. And so this is looking at uh, industrial robots, which are effectively the large industrial robotic arms that we see on car assembly plants. And it's trying to, I guess, reprogram them to do different things. And when we started that work, it was very much about inventing a whole series of new tools. Uh, they're known as end effectors, the thing that goes on the end of the arm. Now we're focusing our work largely on additive manufacturing, um, also known as 3D printing. And we're working through a whole series of different techniques and materials that we can 3D print. And so this is this is not like the 3D printing that we use to, to make models or to make small objects. This is something where we're printing things that are at several meters, uh, each component is sort of several meters across. Okay. Uh, one of the projects that you've 3D printed was CloudFX, which was an installation in Shenzhen. Can you tell us a bit about that project and, and what you learned from that? So that project was an installation as part of the Shenzhen Biennale. And this is printed in a translucent plastic. And the plastic itself is not particularly strong. And so what we're trying to do is work out how we can use this type of plastic in, in buildings. And what you need to be able to do to make this effective is to have some way of reinforcing it. So this project is about reinforcing 3D printed plastics with carbon fiber. And it's part of a research project we're doing with the aerospace company Boeing. And they're interested in how we can combine these two materials to, I guess, develop a different way of thinking about the relationship between skin and structure. So this relationship has a, a very long history, as long as the history of architecture, I suppose. And we're trying to work out a way that we can embed structure within skins and think about the skin as being a type of permanent formwork. So a lot of the work we see with complex geometries and sort of non-standard geometry a lot of the problem has got to do with the mold making or the formwork that's required for this, or the tooling perhaps in, in manufacturing. What we're interested in is an idea where if we 3D print, we, we don't need any particular tooling for it. And we can potentially 3D print the mold and that mold becomes part a permanent part of the building. And so we're doing all these experiments where we 3D print skins and then cast some form of structure back into that skin. For people who might not have seen that project, I mean, it's it's a very unique and organic kind of shape. If we were to bring this type of technology into the actual built world now, what part of, say, domestic building do you think we might start to see this being used in? I suspect it probably won't find its way initially into domestic architecture. I think it's more likely to find its way into um, some of the sort of high-end elements of perhaps cultural institutional buildings. But I think, look, the robotics can be used in multiple ways. One role of robotics, is, of course, is automation. This idea that we can, um, we can automate the, the tasks that are currently done in order to make them uh, cheaper, faster, more reliable, more accurate. I don't find that particularly interesting as a designer. All it's doing is changing the mode of production, but doesn't actually affect the architecture. Yeah, but another way of looking at that is to say, well, if we have a robot, what could it build that we couldn't build in another way? And so a lot of the initial robotics and architecture, I guess, was processes like robotic bricklaying. And there are companies that are commercializing this both in Europe and in Australia. But this, I find this a little bit strange. And it's because if you think about... The architecture that's made from bricks and also the brick itself, it's uniquely related to human labor. It's this idea that a brick is this optimal size that you can pick up with one hand and you can hold a, a trowel on the other hand to lay the mortar. And it's a very effective way of, of humans building things. But if a, if a robot was to build something, robots can, of course, pick up hundreds or thousands of kilograms of material and operate at very different speeds. And so the idea that a robot would be picking up and laying bricks you know, it's just very strange. It's a very strange idea that you would sort of try and replace the human with a robot rather than say, well, what building would a robot build? That's a really good question. 
you know, if, if a robot knows these new parameters and, you know, in our human brain, we're thinking, oh, okay, we've got domestic, commercial, industrial or institutional building to build. Have you started to see that there are new building types that you can build and design with this technology? I'm not sure that the building technology, like the whether it's robotics or what other type of manufacturing, really affects building typology, but it does affect our type of practice. And so the type of practice I have is really one of exploring, testing, and trying to prove something before it can be perhaps adopted in a more broad way. And so that's very hard to do on most conventional building types. It's very hard to use a house as a um, a site for experimentation when we're trying to do something that has no straightforward way through building codes. So in the end, what's happened is it's not so much we've invented new building types, but we've situated our work quite often between architecture and art. So it's often something which is exhibited in a gallery or um, it becomes part of a larger building project as opposed to you know, creating perhaps standalone buildings. Would Flow be a good example of that type of project? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about Flow and what you are able to experiment with on that project because I saw you present it a couple of years ago and it really is quite groundbreaking. So Flow is an installation we did for as part of the triennial at the NGV about two and a half years ago. And it was intended to be a temporary structure only for a period of 10 weeks as part of the Triennale Extra program. And effectively, it's a centerpiece for a party. There's a 10-day event that ran at the NGV, and we were commissioned to design the structure to go in the in the Great Hall. And it was a collaboration with sound artist Philip Samatsis. And Philip has all these amazing sound recordings he takes from the Antarctic. These are where he's recording the sound of, of glaciers cracking or ice melting. And he then composes that work into, into sound art. And what we were asked to do is to try and design a structure or a space or an object that somehow captured the atmosphere of the, um, the place where these recordings were coming from. So we're trying to create something which is, is ice-like. And I guess this came about because Ewan McEwen, the curator for the project, had seen a, an earlier project that we had developed for Monash University for their Sensi Lab. And it was a small meeting room, and it's a meeting room that was clad in translucent 3D printed plastic panels. And these are made, printed from polycarbonate. And they had a sort of detailed corrugation or rippling form to the panels and that reflected and refracted light in interesting ways and it it almost was ice-like and so Ewan was interested in the way we could use that type of technique to try and create a space which had a an ice-like quality and so in the end we made this thing that maybe many people interpret as a sort of mini iceberg or something it's a little six meter high tower which had uh seating at, at its base and then uh a 3D printed translucent, I guess, canopy or, or tower. So the project was printed in in 70 plastic panels. Each one's about 1.8 meters tall. And each of those panels are different. And I guess this is something about 3D printing. There's this notion of mass customization, the idea that every panel can be different, that there's no need to have repetition. So each of these panels were, were similar, but had each had the differences. And they sort of came together to make this sort of swarm of, of panels that wrap this form. Does that mean that when it was put together, um, everything had to be numbered and then sort of laid out next to the drawings and then put together in a really, it must be like one of the most complicated jigsaw puzzles that if every single piece is, is that unique? Yeah, exactly. No, it's an incredibly complex jigsaw puzzle. In the end, we had 70 plastic panels, but then 300 um, pieces of steel each were, were folded differently to make the structure. And the project had a very tight bumping period. We only had three and a half days to build the project. In fact, there was only three months from the start of design to the end of construction and installation. So the project happened incredibly quickly. And because of that, it was a very, very risky project. There was no time to pre-assemble it to make sure it would go together. And so there's there's incredible, I guess, risk. And it was a very intense period of these these few days where we put it together on site. But we didn't didn't use drawings. In fact, there was never a drawing done of the project. How does how does that work? <laughs> so obviously the project, you know, it's all it's all being digitally modeled. So we have a very robust 3D model, which I guess several parts of this were fabricated. So on the one hand, parts of the 3D model get sent to the the robot and it's it's printed. 
Other parts are sent to CNC brake presses to get folded, so laser cut steel and folded. And then in order to assemble it, we were using augmented reality. So we're using the HoloLens and software called Thologram. And this allowed us to be able to see the digital model in the physical space. And we gave these headsets to the installation team. And one of the things that was really remarkable about that is that even though none of these guys had ever used augmented reality before, as soon as they put it on, they didn't talk about the headsets or they didn't talk about augmented reality as like, wow, this is an amazing thing. They just immediately could see the project and started saying, okay, how are we going to deal with this problem? Or, you know, what in what sequence are we, are we going to assemble that? And so it became this very naturalized technology, which I, I was sort of amazed at the way it was was adopted. And then it allowed everybody to be able to see what they were building, to be able to pick up a piece that's numbered, see the number on the in the digital model in space, hold it up to where it needs to go, and then you know effectively bolt this thing together. And so it allowed this complex jigsaw puzzle to go together fairly quickly. Wow, and it's it just sounds amazing that uh, the building team loved taking that on board and getting to play with it. It must have been a really wonderful collaborative effort on on everyone's behalf. Uh, it's just really impressive hearing about the the actual practical side of this technology and the work that you're doing. Yeah, have you started to get more projects either at universities or for commercial clients where you can? work on the practical benefits of having all of this amazing technology at your fingertips because on a lot of projects, costs can go through the roof if they're not at right angles and they're not uniform shapes. Have you started to deal with those issues? Yeah, I guess this is a type of technology that radically changes what is economical. And so when you're 3D printing, it costs the same to 3D print a flat surface as an incredibly detailed and ornate surface. And I think that's a really interesting point for, for architecture because geometric complexity, sort of formal complexity um, and ornament and intricacy has all these connotations and are tied to issues around class and issues around socioeconomic groups and about equality or you know, concerns for, say, for example, austerity. And there is a very much a relationship between austerity and the architecture of austerity. Well, if you think about modernism, I mean, there was obviously an ambition in modernism to strip out ornament. And one of the reasons was because ornament was part of a certain class structure. You know, ornament denoted certain class structures and the expense of ornament was only available to certain you know, parts of the population. And so modernism, of course, you know, being a social project, was interested in stripping that away, partly because it was um, about removing craft and having an interest in mass standardization and you know, machine age. But it was also about, about making architecture for the people and about undermining these class structures. Whereas now we're at the point where if a highly detailed ornamental surface costs no more to build than a flat surface, then that completely changes those sets of assumptions in the way that sort of the cultural role that ornament and intricacy and um, geometric complexity play. So I think this is sort of a, you know, a fascinating, fascinating topic. For for people who might still be using all of the more traditional materials and fabrication methods out there, do you think there's an entry-level new technology that people can start to play with, whether it be software or whether it be fabrication, where people can actually start to see these benefits? I think the building industry is a very slow one to innovate and a very slow one to change. So while in, in a research lab you can develop a way of building something which you can demonstrate to be highly efficient and effective and open up a whole set of new possibilities for design. It doesn't mean when it's adopted by the construction industry, those benefits will be carried across. And I guess what I mean by that is I think that there are companies that are starting to uh, 3D print at a large scale, but currently those things are really quite expensive and needlessly expensive. They shouldn't be expensive ways of building because they involve very little labor Machinery is actually incredibly cheap. Like robots are not expensive. Um, you know, 3D printing hardware is not expensive. So it will take until the point where there's enough of these machines, enough of this equipment within the industry to drive down the price of this until it gets to a point where it really does compete with more traditional ways of building. So I think it's right now, I couldn't say, yes, there's a very uh, easy way to to start working with these processes. But I think that it will get to a point, I, I would like to think, within several years when 
you know, that does occur. And these do become very, very viable ways of, of working. One thing that does change when you're starting to build things which are of increased formal and geometric complexity is, as I said, it's no, no more difficult for a robot to 3D print a very complex surface as a, as a flat one, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's no more complex to design. And so in many ways, what this, this means is like the sophistication that's going to be required from a design perspective to use this, uh, these technologies effectively is what's going to be critical. I mean, will architects develop the necessary uh, skills and knowledge and understanding to be able to um, make the most of a new set of um, techniques and technologies? And I think that this is always the thing that's really slow. And the example that I love to use is the design of the first iron bridge that was in the 1770s in the UK. And this is a, a metal bridge. So it's, it's using a radical, at the time, a radical new technology material. But the bridge looks as though it's a wooden bridge. It has all wooden detailing. So <laughs> it's just, you know, we laugh at that. We think, you know, what a crazy idea that you build a metal bridge that looks like and is has the tectonics of a timber bridge. But that's, of course, the only way they knew how to build lightweight bridges at the time. And so it's going to be the same with architecture. We're going to start to use these tools to 3D print. And we'll be using robotics. We most probably end up using them to lay bricks in the way we know how to lay bricks or to 3D print the kind of forms that we know how to print. It's probably only in you know, several decades' time we'll look back at that and say, well, that is perhaps as foolish as the first iron bridge. Well, it's just been wonderful to learn more about your work, Roland, and thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and experiences with all of our listeners. So thank you so much. Daniel, thank you very much for having me. Specialising in any area of architecture takes many years of research and practice. It can take years of playing with an idea at university or working at different stages of an architectural process before someone finds a particular area that they'd like to do a deep dive into. But finding that one thing can be a revelational moment that brings clarity to a person's career. One initiative in South Australia that helps people on their way to specialisation is the Jack Hobbs McConnell Fellowship. This travelling fellowship was established for promising designers to undertake an independent program of research or study in a special area of interest to further their career. Our next guest is Todd Hislop, who won the 2019 fellowship and chose to travel to Europe and North America to investigate the future practice of architecture and processes that are changing the design industry as a whole. After completing his trip, Todd is now working in Hong Kong at the world-renowned skincare company Aesop, who have a refined understanding of how design supports their company's mission statement. All right, Todd, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really wonderful to have you connecting with us from Hong Kong. How are you going over there? Doing good, and um, thank you for having me as well. It's great to have an opportunity to be on this other end of you know, a podcast. The non-consumption end, I suppose. So, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, no worries. All right. Well, so you were one of the recent recipients of the Jack Hobbs McConnell Travelling Fellowship. When you applied, what was the intention of your trip that you ended up planning? I think the opportunity that really arises from the ability to travel and, and experience different places in the world, different built environments in the world, and also talk to different experts in those other countries and other worlds as well. It just inherently brings this disability to learn. And I think applying for this fellowship, it really came down to this urge of mine to just like constantly be curious about what I do, my life in general, and, and how that feeds into architectural practice. I think practice in itself is kind of all-encompassing. And I think I took on quite an <laughs> ambitious topic in itself where the title that I proposed was Future Practice. So what are the current emerging technologies which are creating this moment of growth and transition within the industry of architecture. But then within that, it allowed me to focus on kind of an array of different, I suppose, intertwined factors to how, how we practice architecture and how we may practice architecture in the years ahead and what elements of those future ideas are actually being implemented today. Right. So what were you saying when you started to, to visit these different companies? I mean, did you mainly go and visit architecture firms? No, it was quite quite broad, actually. I didn't want to just move into a architectural-only perspective of the built environment. I mean, 
I think what architects do so well and, and what the teams that we work with do so well is that collaboration and the constant drive to innovate within what we do. So it was really important to kind of branch out from just our discipline because there are so many influencing factors amongst you know, bringing an idea and a concept to life and then delivering that into an actual built reality. So before we talk about some of those other companies, what were some of the architecture firms that you visited and what are they doing differently with technology that makes their practice look like a practice of the future? I met with quite a number of, of different practices doing a different approach to work. And I think there were some practices which were quite heavy in the use of computational design, the idea of optimizing workflows to really speed up that iterative and, and creative process at the beginning of the project. And is that sort of focusing on BIM and CAD and things like that? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it um, it speaks to the kind of the whole cross-section of, of a project life and really the creation of, of a piece of architecture, you know, all the way from those quiet, quick and tactile methods of forming an idea and then progressing those through that chain into those final stages of whether it's BIM or a really integrated model kind of the embedded data that's required to hand over to key fabricators. And I think um, there were standout practices through that who were engaging with that. So 3XN in Copenhagen. 3XN, quite, a, quite an interesting company in that they're using emerging of different technologies, whether it's software or ways to interrogate design with a material science approach as well. And being able to really back all of, all of this by research yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, so 3XN sounds amazing. Was Well, I guess going past architecture, did you talk to some research groups or academics who are also experimenting with practice and how that's going to develop in the future? Yeah, I did. And I think probably a great example actually came at the very beginning of this trip. And my first stop on the fellowship was, was visiting Zurich in Switzerland. And there for a very short amount of time, but in that time I was able to jump off a plane and immediately rush to my first meeting at the Block Research Group, which is at the ETH in Zurich. Quite a, quite a fascinating research group where, similar to the fellowship in many ways, is that it isn't just a place for architectural study, but it, it brings together a number of, of expertise in, in different fields to really think about what those challenges are that we're trying to address to limit kind of those environmental impacts of, of buildings. Okay. And what was some of the research that this group was doing that's you think is really changing things? The use of optimizing geometries, which I think is what architects can be really good at, is looking at geometry and how that can create some kind of experience or create a visual impact. Okay. And is this primarily on facades and things or is this somewhere else in, the, in a building? I think what was really interesting as a study being conducted at ETH Zurich was how geometries of architecture can actually optimize and lean out the amount of materials that we need to put in into our um, structures. So, I mean, particularly looking at the use of concrete. So does that mean that some geometries are more efficient than others? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, one of the amazing prototypes that I, I was taken to was a, it's a concrete slab in a typical kind of panelized way. So a flat surface usable for a floor. But when you look on the underside of that slab, it clearly doesn't look like any other concrete slab that you would typically see exposed, say, in a car park or, or something like that. Oh, really? So how, how is it different? Very fenestrated, almost alien and organic in a way. But the kind of the fundamental process behind that was taking these optimized forms like the parabola or or archways, which you know are self-supporting structures. Um, like you look back in, in quite classical architecture of how heavy elements within buildings can be suspended in in quite I don't know mind-boggling ways. And being able to translate that from a vertical element into something horizontal is rather groundbreaking. Right. So does this mean that by studying the way that the surface of the of the concrete works, that we can actually develop new forms to actually use concrete with. Yeah, I think that is the that's definitely one of the ambitions. And in parallel to that, it is able to really limit the amount of material that is going into that, and you know still obtain the the structural capability that's required. 
Wow, okay. So beyond the research group and the architecture firms, you mentioned that you met with some some large, really large corporations where they're thinking about practice and technology. Which which companies did you meet with and, and what are they doing? I also met with a a different kind of practice when I was in Switzerland, a company called Design to Production. And they're quite a unique service provider in Europe. And it's really working to this business structure that where they're not really defined themselves as designers or, or fabricators, but instead working as that glue that really brings all of those key players together to achieve really ambitious, really ambitious outcomes. Yeah, great. So what sort of work are they doing? I mean, are they, yeah, how do they fit in? The majority of the work that they undertake is kind of that last link in that delivery chain. So thinking about how they can really translate complexity, you know, digital models, which are kind of delivered to a builder and the builder has that set of documents that has been received and bringing that into the build outcome. And, you know, as buildings are becoming more and more complex, I mean, I think they've always been complex, but when geometries are becoming quite complex, it's important to have that key player within the system that is able to understand what information is needed from either end. So really managing what that design ambition is and making sure that that is sustained and delivered. It sounds like they can receive a really complex model and then even if there's not much resolution about how it can be made or fabricated. They have the skills to actually fabricate almost any any complex geometry. That's right. And I think the surprising component to this conversation that I shared with Design to Production was that this is coming in and, and their input into a design is coming in kind of at those later stages of a project. And that really inherently is because of how there isn't that understanding of, of what a fabricator really requires and the information that is within a building model or, or a BIM model, it's missing. And I think that kind of the bookending of this process is that it comes down to kind of those contractual relationships of, you know, fabricators are you know, typically engaged quite late in the development of a project. So being able to take a model which might just be geometry or it might have a number of other pieces of data built in, but being able to streamline the translation of what is important for a contract set of documents into something which then can be streamlined to that output without the necessary remodeling. Well, that's pretty that's pretty amazing because I'm sure that there are a lot of projects where people have, have drawn what they wanted and then it's been very, very difficult to actually know how to make the aspirational image into a physical thing. So it sounds like design to production are, are one of these standout companies who, who take out the, the guesswork in, in mm. that area. So beyond um, design to production, you mentioned that you met with um, Nike. In terms of how they run their business, what did you learn from them that could be integrated into architectural practice? I thought they just made shoes and, and sports gear and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, well, that is their specialty for sure. <laughs> one, of, one of those really interesting parallels that came out of my discussions with Nike was that, yeah, there are skills which you build and develop in architectural practice that are so valuable in other creative fields. And I think there was an interesting parallel to kind of get an understanding that there are parallels with the software that we use. There's parallels in this desire to really experiment and iterate with different ideas and, and different concepts in a really interrogative way. And also the notion that the development of making a shoe can in some ways be very aligned in the timeframes that we work to within architecture. You know, it might be years of development and architecture can take years of development as well before actually becoming a distributed or, or built thing. Right. So it's got a real iterative process just like just like architecture with lots of prototyping and refining, but I guess they can actually prototype real size and, and real <laughs> scale before it actually goes out to uh, fabrication. Yeah. And I think just as architects and designers constantly trying to predict like how the building will perform in a number of ways, whether it's acoustical, whether it's environmental, being able to simulate and really analyze every single decision that's being made and interrogating that in as much depth as possible, that's also something which you know, occurs within the industry or you know, within Nike. And I think that what is really enabling that thorough 
deep investigation of design decisions is the agility that comes from working with tools that can iterate quickly. And when you said that we use sort of similar tools, they're not getting around with using Revit, are they? Are they using something? Uh, what, what sort of programs are they using to be able to do that sort of iteration? Particularly in my practice as well, I think Rhino and the associated plugins with that software really create a dynamic and flexible workstation. So really based off a lot of explorations of, of design. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so after you did the tour, you've now moved to Hong Kong and you worked with UN Studio and now you're working with Aesop, is that correct? Yes, that is that is correct. Awesome. And how, so how have you been able to implement what you learned on the fellowship to working for an amazing company like Aesop who's definitely designed minded and some of their retail spaces, uh, some of the most beautifully designed around the world. How are you finding that experience? I'm finding it fantastic. It's been a really interesting change from a kind of a conventional office environment or a conventional, you know, architectural office environment. And it was a, a move that I made which was shifting from working on projects which were quite large scale in nature, engaging in cultural and, and public architecture. And they're, they're projects which you know can last for a decade of design to construction. So moving to a ESOP has been quite fascinating to be able to work on projects which have such quick turnaround in terms of concept to realization. And I think it's really fascinating to be able to engage in the design of curating people's experiences and creating moments of joy within their day. Yeah, it's it seems like it's... Uh a company that really appreciates the delight that architecture can bring to a retail experience. How has that now adjusted your design process now that you've got this experience working with Aesop? Yeah, I arrived at a point in my career where you know, I decided to work in a capacity that could truly align to my ambitions and the ability to explore and champion the notions of circular economy within architecture. I think that this notion of designing responsibly and sustainably with the reduction of waste in mind doesn't have to be at a counterpoint to quality experiences and and beautiful architecture. And what sort of examples of of that do you value most in some of the ASOP shops that either you've worked on or that you loved before you started working there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think think my first encounter with an ASOP store was at the, the really early stages of my study of architecture. And I remember it was a store in Adelaide, which is my hometown. And I, I just remember walking past this space and it was an open frontage, but very inviting. And it just kind of emitted these characteristics which I hadn't discovered before. And it really made me think differently about how design can impact emotion and can impact your, your day. Yeah, that's beautiful. So for anyone who's interested in learning more about the Jack Hobbs McConnell Travelling Fellowship or your experience in particular, is there any way that they can read anything about your journey or or the fellowship in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fellowship, as I mentioned earlier, it's an initiative that's established yearly. So the Institute of of Architects, um, the South Australian chapter, can help you out if you would like to know more. With my fellowship and the number of chats and, and meetings and, and places that I was able to explore, which I have captured it through a blog online, which is on my website, and, and there's a number of photos accompanying that as well. So yeah, I'd, I'd be thrilled to share those thoughts and discoveries at toddhislop.com slash jhmtf19. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Todd. And we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future from ASOP and also any of the research work that you're doing. And yeah, we just wish you all the best. So thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. This has been episode 10 of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favorite podcast app. 
Thank you to our guests in this episode, Glenda Caldwell, Roland Snooks, and Todd Hislop for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were conducted around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeleine Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.